for a long time, my family and I, after church, we used to go to church in Hayward, and we would go to this Chinese restaurant on Foothill Boulevard uh, after church on Sundays. Uh, this is where, if you guys have driven down uh, Foothill Boulevard, there's, uh, it's called Jay's Fish and Chips, small little place. It used to be a Chinese restaurant, but uh, my family and I, we used to go there every Sunday after service, and uh, my parents my parents, and also my relatives, and every every time we went there, there was this group of old people, and they were old, uh, probably 70s, 80s, uh, 120s, these <laughs> old, um, and they were really polite. We would make small talk with them every time we, we were there, my parents did, and uh, there's one conversation that they had that I remember very distinctly. They would sit at the table next to ours, and uh, they were talking about Jesus. They were all dressed up in their nice church clothes, so I'm assuming they came straight from church. They were talking about Jesus, and I remember there was this one gentleman that said, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Jesus never claimed to be God. This is what he said. And you might have heard this assertion before. Critics of Christianity, they'll say that this claim that Jesus was God, this is something that these churches, these Christians, this is an idea that they invented uh, way after Jesus, and they said it wasn't until the fourth century that it wasn't, that this wasn't something that we confessed until the Council of Nicaea, and this is when the churches agreed at large to worship Jesus as God. They said that the scriptures, the very words of Jesus, this was not enough for us to say that Jesus is divine. This is what the critics say. So today, my goal is to answer this, this old man that said Jesus never claimed to be God. Is Jesus God or not? And how we answer this question is going to make a world of difference in who we worship and how we worship. So today, we're going to look at the Gospel of John. We've been away from the Gospel of John for a little while now, but we're going to jump back in. And for today and the following two Sundays... Pastor Michael is going to speak in the book of John. And then come summertime, while Pastor Michael is on his sabbatical, we're going to take another break from our series in John. And I'll talk more about what I'll be talking about in the summer. I'm excited about it, but you'll have to wait a few more weeks before I reveal to you what we'll talk about. But today, we're going to look at the Gospel of John. And to set the scene for us, today's passage is part of this larger discussion between Jesus and the devout Jews who have gathered for the Feast of Dedication. This is the Festival of Lights. This is when the Jews would come together every year to celebrate their liberation, their their freedom from the Syrian oppressors 200 years prior. So in the verses leading up to today's passage, Jesus is telling his listeners that God, his Father, and he himself, they're of one mind and one purpose in calling and protecting and caring for the sheep, the people of God. So this will bring us into our text. We're jumping into the middle of a conversation. If you look in your bulletin, we have John chapter 10, starting with verse 30, and we'll read to the end of the chapter. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works, from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, 
Is it not written in your law? I said, You are God's. If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, You are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there. This is the word of God. So my goal for us today is for us to settle in our mind this question. Is Jesus God or not? And if he is, what does it mean for us? So we have three points in your bulletin. Uh, Number one, the gods and the son of God. Number two, the logic of Christ's deity. And number three, the works of the father. Our first point God's and the Son of God. So the Jews, they hear Jesus speak, and they become enraged. They're incensed. He says that he and the Father are one. He says that, that, that there's this unity of purpose between him and God the Father. And these Jews, they, they know what he's implying when he's saying these things. That he's not only sent from God, not only does he know the very thoughts of God, but that he himself is equal to God. And the Jews hear this, and this is blasphemy. And because this is blasphemous, Jesus must be put to death. So you can imagine the Jews with scowls on their faces, their teeth clenched, with stones ready to throw into Jesus' body. And I want us to think about this. How is it that Jesus could elicit such a strong reaction from his hearers? These Jews, they might have been wrong, but at least they were honest on some level. They knew that Jesus couldn't be ignored. By his deeds and his words, Jesus has shown himself to be extraordinary, whether or not you believe him. And this is why not just during this time in the first century, but why for the past 2,000 years, Jesus has loomed over history. And even if you don't consider yourself religious, I know that some of us are in that camp right now, you have, to, you have to at least acknowledge that as a historical figure, Jesus has been the most influential figure in Western history. So we, you look at the reaction of these Jews, and one of the things we're being told is that you can't remain indifferent to Jesus. If you come in contact with Jesus, the one thing you can't do is you can't remain indifferent. You have to react. You have to respond to him. Because here, Jesus is not just a controversial figure You have to respond because Jesus threatened your very identity. As we look into this exchange between the Jews and Jesus, we see how he does this. Jesus does this by positioning himself as a threat to to their identity as proud Jews, as good, studious Jews. Jesus says, let me see what I can do to that identity. So with rocks in their hands, they're about to throw stones into his face. And then Jesus asked, why, why do you want to stone me? They say, verse 33, because you make yourself to be God. Jesus defends himself. He uses the scripture that these good 
and devout Jews would know well. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. He's referencing Psalm 82, and this is in your bulletin. If you look at the first few lines, they, they say this, You are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. And Jesus is saying to them, to refer to yourself as God, this is not without precedent. Actually, look at your scriptures. Your own scriptures prove that there's, there's a precedent for using the title gods and sons of the Most High. And Jesus is using this as a point of reference, as, a, as the basis for his claim about himself. He says, if you can be called gods, then surely it's not blasphemous for me to call myself the Son of God. Does not Psalm 82 also call you sons of God? Jesus is pointing them to their own scriptures. As we look at the context of Psalm 82, we see that gods and the sons of gods referenced here, the sons of the Most High, they're referencing the rulers and the judges who've been tasked to carry out the judicial work of the land. These are the, the, the men that have been chosen to administer justice. They're to oversee the land that they've been given. So it's their title as little g gods to carry out the will of the true God. But they were never able to fulfill the roles. And this ha- there has to be someone who does fulfill the roles. Jesus is saying, look at what Psalm 82 says. You yourself have been called gods. You yourself have been called sons of the Most High, but you have not done it well. There's a story about some violinists that might help us understand this. So here goes a story. One day, a group of musicians called the Guild of Violinists were looking through the papers of the president of the guild who recently passed away. He, this president, he was a prolific composer, and as the musicians dug through his old music, they came across mostly familiar pieces of music, but they found one piece of music that looked strange. This was obviously a piece written for a violinist, and it looked like nothing they had ever seen before. It, it just seemed so, it just stuck out. It was compelling, but it looked really difficult to play. It was probably impossible to play. And at the top of the sheet of music was these words, dedicated to the guild of violinists. The violin, violinists, they see this, and they're fascinated, and they're honored, but they're also a little bit embarrassed because they look at the music and they know that none of them can play the piece. So they agree, we're going to figure this out. We're going to play this music. So they make copies of this president's music and every member, each violinist, took home this piece of music to try out. And later on, they all got together and they all came up with reasons why they weren't able to play this piece of music. These notes can't be played simultaneously. There are too many. There doesn't seem to be any melody to this music. It's physically impossible to move your fingers the way we're supposed to in order to play this music. These were the reasons that they gave for not being able to play it. And some of them, they wondered whether this old man, if he even meant for this music to be played, maybe he was just trolling us. So they gave up trying to play this piece of music and they forgot about it. Years and years go by and then one day... An old man comes into the city carrying an old battered violin case. He didn't look like a violinist. He just looked like a nobody that you would forget. He's just passing through town. 
So this old man, he takes up residence in the main city square and he starts playing his violin. And it was the most strange and beautiful music that anyone in town had ever heard. These violinists that found the president's music years earlier, they heard about it and they rushed into the center of town to listen to what was being played. And as they listened, they knew exactly what was being played They were listening to the music that was dedicated to them. And they couldn't believe it. They thought that this music was impossible to play. But the old man, he was playing the music flawlessly. And the music, it seemed to dance. And some passages were so bright and joyful. And others were so dark and haunting. That as they heard the music, some of them started to weep from the beauty of the music. The music was done, and some of the violinists, they burst into applause, and others, they were furious. They said, this was supposed to be our music. How dare this man come in, who's not a member of the guilds? What right does he have to play this and make us look like fools? This old violinist, he heard their complaints, and he told them, you know, I'm the son of the composer of this piece. He's the one that taught me how to play this. And he made me a member of the guild before any of, you, any of you ever picked up a violin. Jesus, as he talks about Psalm 82, he's saying this, that he is the true God. He is a true son of the Most High. Where all these good Jews have failed, he's come to fulfill what they were tasked with. And just as the violinists weren't able to play the music, the human rulers and judges of the people of God, they were not able to rule or judge as they they should have. And just as the son of the composer was able to play the music of his father, Jesus the son, he's come to rule and judge as his father had called his people to do. So Jesus doesn't need to tell his listeners where he's headed with his arguments. Psalm 82 references these little G-gods, and as good Jews, they know their own history. You might know it as well. In the Old Testament, king after king, judge after judge, they were given to Israel, but none of them could be the king or the judge or the ruler that Israel needed. You, re- you might remember, uh, I think this was two or three years ago, we went through the book of First and Second Samuel, and you, re- you might remember that the Jews, they looked at all the surrounding nations, they all had kings, and they said, we want a king as well. In fact, they demanded a king. God warns them, it's not going to be good if you get a king, and they go, we still want a king. So God gives them exactly what they want, and do you remember King Saul? He starts off well. And he becomes, over the years, this obsessive, vengeful failure of a king. And this sets the pattern for all of the Old Testaments. For all the rulers that would come after King Saul. And the history of the Jews is the history of just a long series of disappointments. Ruler after disappointing ruler. These are the rulers, these are the judges that's are referred to in Psalm 82, the little G gods. And then look at verses, verse 7 of chapter 82. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. This is you, Jesus says. Psalm 82, 
is referring to you. But he uses this psalm to point to himself. He says, this is what you were unable to carry out. But let me make a claim. Verse 36, he calls himself the Son of God. The Son of God. And this, this scandalizes his hearers. He says, I am the Son of God. Now, when we hear the Son of God, it might seem a little tame. We think of usually a father and son that are biologically connected. And through the act of procreation, a child is born. And this, this relationship is one of two people, father, son. They both have a different purpose. They both have different levels of authority. And while there may be much love and intimacy in this relationship, there is not equality. There's not equality in the father-son relationship. But the Bible makes a distinction between biological, human, earthly fathers and sons and Jesus the Son and God the Father. So you might know this verse, John 3.16. What does it call Jesus? It calls Jesus the only begotten Son of God. So there are two options when it comes to Jesus, the existence of Jesus. There is, you can say that he was either created or that Jesus was begotten. If Jesus were created, it would mean that there was a time when he didn't exist. But the scriptures tell us, John 3.16, that he was begotten. He wasn't created. And C.S. Lewis, he uses this analogy. He says, uh, beavers beget beavers, birds beget eggs that become birds, and humans beget humans. And looking at John 3.16, God begets God. Jesus, the Father didn't create Jesus as a lesser being. And this word begun, this is used to establish the relationship between the Father and the Son. These are both distinct beings, separate, but they are both God. They're both of the same nature. They're both of the same essence. And while this might be a little bit unfamiliar to us, the Jews know exactly what Jesus is saying. They understand that when Jesus says that he's the Son of God, that he is claiming to be God himself. And if Jesus is God, this means that this is a huge threat to their identity. That would mean that they themselves could not be God. This is why Jesus refers to Psalm 82. You are little g-gods. But if there is the real God in front of you, that means that you can't play that role. Now the question for us today is this. Who is the little g-god of our life? If you've decided that you are the best ruler of your life, if you've decided that your judgments, that your wisdom of yourself and of others and reality, if you've decided that this is the best, is the best judgment, that means that you've made yourself a little G-God of your own life. And Jesus will threaten that identity. So Jesus comes to the Jews and he says... Here's someone in front of you that you're going to have to deal with. This is why the Jews were so threatened. This is why they're so upset. Our second point, the logic of Jesus' deities. So, uh, of Jesus' deity. So, if Jesus is God, there are several implications. And these implications are massive. I want to point out three. So, the first is this. If Jesus is really the Son of God, if Jesus is equal to God... It means this, that we as Christ followers, we don't hold to a set of beliefs as much as we worship a person. 
you may have listened to other, what other followers of other religions might have to say. Uh, generally, Jesus is very well regarded. Jesus is respected by most people. When people speak of him, they admire him even. But Jesus, he doesn't come to be admired. Jesus comes to be worshipped. Jesus doesn't come as a man who was as good as God. Jesus comes as God. This means that God didn't send a creature to show us a way. He gave us Jesus to be the way to God. God didn't send us Jesus to set us an example for us to follow, but to live the perfect life that we could never live. And Jesus doesn't send, God doesn't send Jesus as a teacher to merely teach us the truth. He sends Jesus to be the truth that we need. This is why Jesus says in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Religion says, try harder so that you can reach God. But Christianity says that you can never do good enough, so God has come down to you. This is why the deity of Jesus is so important, because the Christian faith collapses if Jesus is not God. As one theologian put it, the Son of God, the Son cannot be a bridge between God and humanity if the bridge does not reach fully to both ends. If Jesus is not God, it would mean that what we have is just a set of ethics and morals to abide by. I know, that, I know that some of us have been attending churches for years, and I don't know everyone's story, but it might seem like our lives don't look all that different from the lives of our non-believing friends and neighbors And I wonder if it's because we give intellectual assent to a belief system, but we don't take the person of Christ seriously. Christianity is the person of Christ. And we all have to think seriously about what we say we believe. Do you hold to a set of beliefs or do you worship a person? You weren't created to be a good person. You were created to worship your creator. That's the first implication. The second is this. If Jesus is God, then we owe him our complete allegiance. If Jesus is God, then that means that he has all authority. Colossians 1, it tells us that by him all things were created. That means that you were in the mind of Jesus before you were created. It means that Jesus thought you and created you and me. That would mean that he has absolute rights over us as your creator. Last week we said that Jesus is the King of Kings, and that means that he rules over us whether or not we acknowledge it. We all have someone ruling over us, and we can resist him the same way that we can resist gravity, or we can submit to him. And if Jesus is God, it means that you cannot be God of your own life. And when we surrender to him, we can have the joy and purpose and hope and security that we want that we all want so badly. It's really amazing how God has designed us, that we are most human, that we have the most security and joy when we give up our own desires and submit to what he wants. Because in Jesus is all joy, because Jesus himself is a source of all joy. In Jesus is the purpose for our lives to follow him and to lead others to follow him. In Jesus is all hope because he has purchased 
everlasting life for us. And in Jesus is absolute security. We will never be snatched out of his hands. If you look into your Bibles, look at just a few verses prior to our passage today. What does he say? I'm holding you in my hand and no one will ever take you from me. If Jesus is God, it means that we owe him everything. We surrender everything to him. We give him all our allegiance. And the third implication, why would I want to submit myself to him? Why would I want to give myself to this man who's made this claim? The third implication of Jesus' deity is that we can have absolute confidence in the character of God. I just I mentioned just a couple minutes ago, John 10, 28, Jesus says that he gives us eternal life and he says that in his, his hand is a hand of protection around us. It means that he will not let anything ultimately harm us. It means that when Jesus holds you, there's this immediate connection. If I were to hold a little bird in my hand, I could not forget that there's a bird in my hand ever until I let it go. But Jesus says, I'm never going to let my people go. I'm never going to forget them. And if this is the heart of Jesus, that this means that this is the heart of God. If we belong to him, we need to know that the promises he's made to us are true. We need to remember that over all the years that we followed him, he's never been unfaithful to us. He's always been watching over us. He's always been doing everything for our good, ultimately. And how can we know this? How do we know that God really cares for us that way? When we began our series in the Gospel of John last year, Pastor Michael uh, took us through John chapter 1. This is one of the most amazing passages in Scripture. I, I love John chapter 1. And John one eighteen says this, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. The Greek, phrase, the Greek of that phrase, made him known, is exegesato. Exegesato, this is a Greek word. And this is where we get the word exegesis. If you've been around theology at all or have read theological books, you know that the word exegesis is taken from this Greek word. And it refers to the process of studying and interpreting Scripture. So whoever comes up and stands here in front of you, it was their job to do the work of exegesis. It was to look at the Word of God, to study it, and to figure out what it says. And then it's our job to make known what God is saying to His Word. It's our job to explain what God is saying. And John chapter 1 is saying, by His very own nature and His own being, Jesus is explaining to us, he's exegeting to us exactly what God is like. It means that God doesn't leave us in the dark to guess what he's like. Because if we know Jesus, we know God. That Jesus is God means that God didn't send a lesser being to carry out his will. God sent himself. I've read this quote to you before, but I love it. Dorothy Sayers, she writes this of Jesus. For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrow and death. But he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and played fair. He can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. 
he has himself gone through the whole of human experience, from the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and the lack of money to the worst horrors of pain and humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. When he was a man, he played the man. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. Philippians 2 tells us that God did not count himself equal to God. Even though Jesus was God, he condescended. He gave up his rights as the creator of the universe. Now, what kind of God would do this for you? The deity of Christ matters because what do you have to hold on to when you're suffering? What do you have to hold on to when you're full of sorrow, when you are alone, when you're betrayed? What do you have to hold on to when you are in complete despair? What do you have? If Jesus is not God, that means that we have a God that does not know our pain. We have a God that doesn't know what it's like to walk this earth and have his heart broken or to be filled with sadness or to suffer physically. If Jesus is not God, at the very best, you have a God who can feel sorry for you, but he will never be able to enter your pain. If you want a a God that you can trust, if you want to know that God is good, you need to know that Jesus is God. Our final point, the works of the Father. So as we continue in the text, we see that Jesus, he doesn't expect to be, to be believed just on the basis of his claims to these Jews. So he appeals to something that the Jews can't deny. They saw him perform his miracles. They listened to what he had to say. They saw how he carried himself with the utmost integrity. And he says, these things that you saw, these are the works of God the Father. It's on the basis of my works that you should believe my claim. Because the works of Jesus, they are inextricably tied to the works of God. So verse 30, we begin with that, this, this verse today. When Jesus says that he and the Father are one, he's saying that the purpose of the Father and the Son are the same. Therefore, the works of the Father are also the works of the Son. And only God could do what the Jews witnessed through Jesus. God is always working. God has worked through me. But there's one work that the Jews have not witnessed yet. We we read, I'm going to take you back to Psalm Psalm 82, verses 6 and 7. The earthly little gods, little G-gods, they've proven to be failures. And they're they're going to fade away like everyone else. But Psalm 82, it ends with an amazing verse. A hopeful verse. And it's not in your bulletin, so you'll, you can turn there in your, in your Bible if you want to, or you can just listen to me. Psalm 82, 8, the last verse of the psalm. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. In light of all these failed little g-gods, God himself will arise to judge the earth, to rule the earth. I said earlier that Jesus threatens our identity. Anyone who encounters the true, the true Jesus is going to have their identity, the basis of their life, radically disrupted. The judge comes, as promised in, at the end of Psalm 82.8, here is a judge who is going to carry out his job as a judge. 
a job is supposed to render judgment on the offender. And Jesus says, that's me. I'm coming as a judge. But I'm not coming to judge you. And I haven't come to render judgment on the offender. The gospel says that we were created to know and love our creator, God. But instead of honoring him, we've become the little g-gods of our own lives. We've tried to live according to our own judgments rather than live by the judgments of the one who created us. And the natural consequence of that is death. If you're not going to live as you were created to live, the natural consequence is death and the just wrath of God. So Jesus comes as a judge, but he lays down his rights as God. And on the cross, what does he do? He lets the judgment and wrath fall completely on, not the offender, but on himself. Jesus endured it to the full so that we would never have to. And now, instead of being objects of wrath, as the Bible says, we can be called the children of God. And this is what C.S. Lewis means when he says the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. Does Jesus threaten your identity? Jesus has come to destroy your identity. And thank God he does because your identity without Christ is futile and it leads to death. Jesus has come to destroy your identity as a little G-God, but he will give you a new identity as one who can be called a son of God with all the rights and privileges of a child who has a father who lavishes love on him or her. This is why we can call Jesus not just our God, but our brother. Being the little G-God of our lives, this has failed us. So the invitation today is, come now. Come now. Instead of trying to be a God, instead of trying to be the God of your life, instead of using your own judgments and your own wisdom, choosing your own lifestyle preference, whatever it is that you're into, instead of trying to be a God, come become a child of God. And this is the work of the Father. This is the work of God. It's not to dispense judgment but it's to pour out grace. The cross is the ultimate work of God. Look at verse 38. Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. And this is what we need to understand. Jesus, he uses this phrase like a surgeon uses a scalpel. It's, he's, he's so intentional with his words. This, we're looking at the English Standard Version. Uh, the English translation, it says, know and understand. And in the original Greek, it's actually... Know and know. I want you to know and I want you to know this. The English translators of this phrase, they use know and understand because the word to know, it's actually used in two different tenses. There is the past perfect tense and the present tense. The past perfect tense, we need to know this because he wants us to know that. He wants us to know who he is. He wants us to have the matter completely settled in our mind and in our hearts, so that we can rest in this truth forever. This is the past perfect tense, but there's also the present tense. The present tense means this knowledge and understanding is ongoing. Jesus wants us to continually progress in our understanding and knowledge of who he is. 
so that while you can rest your entirety, so while you can rest the entirety of your being on Jesus, you will never be content with what you have, with what we already know. Present tense knowing means that we never stop learning more and more about Jesus. It means that we never stop being astounded by who Jesus is, that he is in the Father and the Father is in him. This mystery is intensely, endlessly profound and we'll spend all of eternity being amazed by its holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, God in three persons, blessed Trinity. When we talk about the deity of Jesus there's one sense in which we, we just simply can't comprehend what this means. How can it be that there is one God made up of three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? They're all distinct. They all play different roles, yet they're all equally God. I can't wrap my head around it. But if there was a God that you could fully understand, would you want to worship that God? Thank God that he is bigger than we can comprehend. And thank God that the God we worship is named Jesus. Will you pray with me? Father God, what an amazing thing it is that we can speak to you in the name of Jesus. Jesus who lived and died in our place and is our brother now. He made us sons and daughters of God because he himself is the Son of God. I pray that this would never be boring to us. I pray that we'd never get over this, God. I pray that this would transform the way we live, that we would give you our complete allegiance, that we'd be astounded by this forever. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.